Hi, this is George Thorgood. Hey, this is Pat Travers. Hey, this is Steve Lukather of Toto. Hey, this is Ryan. Hey, this is Chuck. We're in Black Top Mojo, and you're listening to Guitar Talk with Jimmy Warren. All right, welcome everybody. Jimmy Warren here. Thanks for tuning in to Guitar Talk again. We so much appreciate it. We do, man. Thank you so much for listening. We well, you know my guest today is best known as the guitarist for the iconic rock group Supertramp. Carl Verhan is what I would consider a player's player. I mean, this guy can do anything. He shared the stage with some of the greatest and some of the best well-known guitar players. Look at this guy's played with Albert Lee and Steve Morris and Steve Lukather and Joe Bonamassa and Robin Ford and Brad Paisley. And I could go on and on and on. As a matter of fact, Robin Ford was the one that said that Carl was a real player and that says something you know coming from robin ford one of the things that i like best about carl is that he can play anything it doesn't matter what style of music it is it doesn't matter if it's on an acoustic or electric or or whatever you know this guy can play anything and that must be something because even brad paisley once said that carl could go anywhere musically and that's the truth carl can go anywhere musically so you know, he's definitely somebody to pay attention to if you're not already. And if you want to take lessons from Carl, he has the Carl Verhan Academy, CV Academy, that you can access at carlverhan.com. Man, you can learn right from the master himself. So uh, I think you're really going to like this conversation because there is a lot of really good nuggets. This guy knows what you need to know. That's for sure. So, without any further ado, here you go. The one and only Carl Verhan. Hey, Jimmy. It's Carl Verhan calling. Hey, Carl. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, this is our designated time. Are you all ready to rock? I, you know what? It's rolling. All right. <laughs> I know time is money, right? So, <laughs> so we don't want to take up too much of your time and your money. So, there we go. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Anyway, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you uh, you know taking some time out of your day to chat with me. Uh, no problem. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So. You know, it's I always uh, I always enjoy this type of conversation because it's players like yourself. You know, when I think of guys like you and Mark Goldenberg and Bernie Charavelli and John Harrington and you know what I mean those those guys that are just like just a player's player. Oh man, well thank you very much. Yeah, I know all those guys and uh I, I respect them all. I love John Harrington. He comes to see me play at the Iridium in New York whenever I'm out there and uh, he comes to hear my band and uh he doesn't have a driver's license or a car. And that's so typical New Yorker, isn't it? <laughs> wow. Well, I I actually I just spoke with him just I don't know uh last Friday. Oh wow! Great. How's he doing? He's he's doing really well, actually. Good. Yeah, he's off the road for the year, like all of us. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, hopefully that's gonna change. You know, here coming up in early next year. Hopefully. I sure hope so too. I know. I had to cancel forty-three concerts between oh. August first and December fifteenth. Forty-three down the down the tube. So it was it was painful. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, I know that you've uh, you've taken a dive. I mean, you've you've always uh, been involved in um, in instruction. 
you know, in in teaching and, and things of that nature. And I know now you have the CV Academy. Yeah, I've been doing that for a few years now. So, yeah. so is, has that been going well through through these times? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it, it kind of got bumped up a bit, right. and uh, you know, because because people are people are looking to get better and uh, and 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 work on their playing, and uh, me included. And I I just I set out to learn a few new skills that I have never. Uh, never had before, like the thumb pick, for instance. I've done festivals all over the world with people like Doyle Dykes and Tommy Emanuel and Joe Robinson, and um, I always look at this thumb pick thing as, ah, that's a different lifetime, I'll get that. You know, they're they're acoustic guys, I, 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 I'm going to be a flat pick guy. But then I see these guys pull out a flat pick and play just as well. You know, so uh, it, got, it dawned on me that, well, hey, I love it. Why don't I know it? You know, right. So, so, so you've taken this time to learn how to use a uh, thumb pick. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, because uh, it's a whole different sound than the flat picks. So, I got started on it back in March, and uh, you know, I just, I just kicked. You know, just worked on it. At first, it felt like a chair strapped around my thumb, but eventually, I just uh, it got more and more natural. And today, I just love doing it. So, yeah. Yeah, well, you know what your your history and uh, your ability and stuff is is so massive, and I know we don't have time to go into absolutely everything. So uh, you know, I'd like to know, you know, what makes a guy like you as, as good of a player as you are. I mean, what are some key things that you've done over the years that have helped establish you as uh, a really versatile, solid player? Man, that's a that's a really great question because it's it's different for everybody. But for me, um, you know, I started off playing playing rock and roll and got my first guitar at age eleven, and I was just smitten with the Birds and the Beatles and that British Invasion stuff. And then then when when Clapton and Cream came along a few years later, it 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 made me realize there's a whole virtuoso side to playing the guitar, not just great sounds and accompanying a vocal. You know, and uh, Hendrix and all that. But then at a certain point, um, I got into, what happened to me was that my family took us out to dinner, my dad and mom, at a little restaurant in uh, Pasadena, where I'm from. And uh, as I was walk- as we were walking out, I saw this guy playing and singing in the bar with an acoustic guitar. And I said, I can do that. So I asked, the, I asked somebody, how do I, get, how do I get this gig? And they go, well, you have to audition for the owner. He'll be in tomorrow. So I came back with my little guitar and uh, played a few songs, sang a few tunes, and he hired me. And um, I, I got two nights a week and eventually went to five nights a week. And I, uh, but, but, but I wasn't quite 18, so I had to wait three months until I could start working there. <laughs> so cause you can't work in a bar when you're underage. So anyway, long story short... Um, uh, I was doing that gig for a few years and um, eventually expanded to have a keyboard player and a, and a, and a conga player, play percussionist, play with me. And then one night, uh, this guy walked in and goes, you know, this older guy said, I like the way you play, son, you know. <laughs> and he goes, would you like to come over and jam sometime? So I said, yeah. So I went over to his house and he put some music in front of me and the first chord was an F major seventh, which I knew. The second chord was a D minor 7 flat 5, which I didn't know. Anyway, 
the guy, I, I, I said, is this it? You know, I went up five degrees on, from the D and said, it's the A, you flat the A, right? And he, he proceeded to show me like 25 voicings of this chord. And, uh, you know, I thought it was pretty hot. I could play Stairway to Heaven and I could play Crossroads. And, you know, I thought it was pretty hot. But this was like looking over the cliff yeah. at a huge valley of stuff I had no idea about. So in the 70s, in that period, this is going to answer your question eventually. <laughs> uh, in, the, in that period, I, I literally immersed myself in jazz and I learned... You know, I learned about 150 standards, and I learned how to play them in different keys, and I took lessons, and I was just totally into it, until one day, I was living at this time in North Hollywood, and uh, just just kind of recently moved up there from living down in, uh, down in the beach communities where there was a lot of clubs you could play jazz in, but I, I realized that the cats were living in... in in North Hollywood and I mean Hollywood and you know in other words in order in order to be a real pro you kind of had to live where the pros lived a bit anyway I'm driving in my car and I heard this Joe Walsh solo on the radio and it, it was this life-changing moment it was in that Eagles tune called those shoes and it hit me real hard just how far rock guitar had come since I had checked out you know I checked out in the early 70s and you know Aerosmith was coming online and I was thinking yeah that's not challenging that's just more Rolling Stones to me you know I got that stuff anyway it, it hit me real hard this Joe Walsh solo and it, it it made me realize that even though I can play 25 choruses on Stella by Starlight this Joe Walsh stuff is the music of my people and it expanded to the moment to a to a to a place where I just said, but you know what? I like country music. I like what Chet Atkins, what Chet Atkins plays, and what uh, James Burton and Albert Lee and and uh, I also like you know what Albert King plays, and I like what Mike Bloomfield plays. And I just it, it hit me like a ton of bricks that I just needed to learn everything I dig. You know, yeah. if I like it, I should know it, and that goes for styles and songs. You know, it, like. You go your whole life listening to something like Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. Well, it blows my mind, that song, so why don't I know it, you know? So I just, I, I do that. I just learn, I learn harmony, I learn songs and analyze why is this a good song and, and uh, what part of it, what, what little two-bar phrase or four-note phrase just always blows me away, you know? So when you ask about, you know, your question to get all the way back to it is that at some point I just decided that although I'm going to be sort of a, a specialist in a, in a rock, blues, blues rock type style, I want to be completely real and completely informed about bluegrass and country and fusion and straight ahead jazz and, uh, you know, just basically blues, you know, any style that I dig, I want to I want to be authentic and good at it. And uh, and I think that really carried me through all my studio work years, you know. Yeah. Wow. I mean, because when, when you go back and if you really look at your history and you listen to your discography and everything that you've you've been on, I mean, you are a well versed player. I mean, you can pull out 
you know, like you said, you can pull out jazz or country or, or blues or rock or whatever it is. And you can mix all that up, which is another thing that I think is really cool. Um, you know, it, but but at some point in time, though, you had to really dive in and, and really learn how, you know, to read and understand music. Yeah, well, you know, in my early days in the studios, um, uh, I wasn't a very good reader and I would practice reading and it was real difficult for me. I just couldn't. I just couldn't get better, and uh, I went down back in the days when you had to pick up your checks at the Musicians' Union in, in Hollywood. I was down there one day, and I ran into a composer buddy of mine that I'd known for a long time, and he took me aside and said, hey, man, I just want you to know, I want you to hear it from me. I got this double session on Wednesday, but uh, even though I like your playing better, your feel better, your rhythm ideas better, your creativity, your soloing, everything better i had to call this other guy because he's a better reader and we have a lot to get through so that pissed me off to no end <laughs> you know i was gonna i was set you know i was gonna lose a 1200 dollar day and i was about you know 25 26 years old and i'm going man that's that's a whole lot of money to be losing at that age you know yeah so um long story short i went to this buddy of mine who i was trading classical lessons for blues rock type lessons, you know, blues lessons or whatever, electric guitar lessons. I went to him and uh, complained that, you know, I wish there was a class we could take or something we could do. And he had the genius idea. He goes, man, let's just start our own class. Let's go down to this music store and each of us buy a stack of music books, clarinet books, flute books, saxophone books, trumpet books, bop, bebop duet books, classical uh, duet books, you know, just anything in the treble cleft that wasn't exercises. So we went down there and we each bought about 75 bucks of music. And the only other two requirements were a metronome and a coffee pot. <laughs> and we, we got together every day. Um, and within two weeks, we were reading better because the thing about reading on guitar, it's really, it's really a difficult instrument to read on. But the main thing is training your eyes to keep going at a tempo. You know, so if you're going along and you screw up bar 53 and he makes by bar 53, you can't stop and go, what, was, what did I do wrong? What position should I have been in? You can't do any of that. You just have to keep on playing. And so you, get, you got better just by the fact that your eyes had to keep going and you had to read ahead. And, and, um, and then there were a few other tricks I learned. Um, by taking a lesson or two from this master sight reader guy in town named Tony Rizzi. And he had played on the Munsters theme, you know, he'd, he'd been around being a studio guy forever. And he offered some lessons in sight reading and uh, they proved to be invaluable for me. So yeah. that, that was a turning point. <laughs> yeah, we, you also hit on something that I was gonna ask you and I guess you kind of answered the question. A lot of great guitar players pay attention you know, to other instruments, like, you know, mostly like, you know, like, uh, orchestral, uh, instruments or horns, you know, uh -huh. violins, you know, things of that nature. Like, Cause I know a lot of great players and they're, they're like, well, I, I grew up and I, you know, listened to a lot of Coltrane. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, train is, train is a guy I, I, I transcribed in my, in my long, dark jazz years. Yeah. <laughs> and also Sonny Rollins. Mm -hmm. And then I got to a point where, I remember being in Paris uh, on the road with Supertramp, I think it was in the 90s, where 
I was in Paris, France, and and it was a rainy day, and we were there for about a month because we had rehearsed there, and we were hubbing out of there, and it was a day off, and it was raining, so I go, you know, I'm not going to go out. And I didn't have a guitar with me, so I decided to transcribe a Miles Davis solo, a simple one, like I think it was Freddie the Freeloader off of Kind of Blue. I decided to just try to transcribe it without an instrument, you know, in other words, on the couch instead of on the guitar or on the piano. And that was a really great ear training exercise. And then I did it again. I did Green Onions, <laughs> you know, the yeah. Booker T tune and transcribed all of Booker T stuff. And it's simple, but it's a, it's a, it's another exercise entirely because you've got nothing to check against. And, um, but yeah, the keyboard players, Bill Evans and uh, Sonny Rollins, I learned a lot from, from those guys, as well as Hendrix. You know, you transcribe yeah. all of Hendrix's rhythm parts, and you really get a, a foundation in rhythm guitar that way. Yeah, see, I, I think that was one of the, the most masterful things that, you know, Hendrix did was his rhythm playing. I think oh, yeah, man. He was... Yeah. He was so steeped in that beautiful R&B tradition and yeah. you can hear a lot of influence from Curtis Mayfield and Steve Cropper and stuff but uh, he put it together like nobody else had and uh, for your listeners that understand theory a little bit you, you know about the relative minor of a key well Hendrix didn't have that many rhythm licks but he was able to use them on the relative major and minor meaning his D major rhythm licks were the same as his B minor rhythm licks. And once you understand that um, and understand how his thumb works, and then he has some modal chords like you hear in the third or fourth to last bar of Little Wing, you know, some of the, or Castles Made of Sound, some of those modal chords that he can move around that are all fifths. You know, you really get the gist of it, and man, did it ever help me in my in my career as a studio player because I remember working for this jingle gut company and one of the writers only wrote in the key of C and so there'd be like two sessions a week sometimes three and this writer everything he wrote was key of C you know yeah. he was a good musician and everything but he just put everything there and so every other day I'd have to come up with rhythm guitar parts that had to do with C, F, A minor, D minor, you know, yeah. G7, uh, just all diatonic C stuff. And so, boy, that Hendrix stuff and the, some of the Cropper stuff, and then, you know, you can you can divide up rhythm guitar into multiple categories. You know, there's R&B style, and there's kind of a modern style that Andy Summers was doing, and then there's, uh, you know, there's a rock style that has more to do with you know, in the early days, Chuck Berry, and then it gets into the power chord stuff of, of uh, Keith. Of, I mean, of Pete Townsend and Van Halen and stuff. And you know, there's these, and then there's the jazz style, all the comping, which kind of lends itself really nicely to the funk style. People like Jimmy Nolan and Prince, and uh, you know, so so if you if you kind of separate them into a little bit of categories, um, you have a you have a good idea of what the song's going to need, you know. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, uh, if, if you don't mind, let me let me switch uh, gears a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things I like to to find out about is is some of the uh, instruments that you're using in order to create some of the 
you know, great tones that you get. And I know, I know most of the time you're a Strat player, and I know there's another guitar, an LSL. Well, yeah, LSL, um, Fender came to me and said we'd like to make a signature Strat, uh, but they wanted to make an d- exact copy of my 1961 Seafoam Green Strat that they'd seen me playing a lot in videos and stuff. But what they wanted to do was make, you know, an exact replica of that with all the scratches and things that are in it and make 40 of them and sell them for 6000 apiece. And I said, well, I don't really want that. I would much rather have uh, a guitar that everybody could buy, yeah. you know, that has the, the, the little mods and upgrades that I do that everybody can own. You know, something worth more like eighteen to 2400 And they, they went back and forth like, okay, you need to talk to the people in Corona, California, because they had flown me out to Flagstaff for this meeting. Arizona, and um, so I called up Corona, and they go, "Oh no, you need to talk to the people in Flagstaff." And I said, "I was there yesterday." So they didn't know. Right hand and left hand don't know what each other's doing. So yeah. right about that time, uh, Lance Lerman, who runs LSL, he he called me and asked me if I'd be interested in in helping him design one, and you know what are the important things. And so I said, "Yeah, but you know, we we need to." If it's going to have my name on it, it needs to it needs to have some of the little tweaks that I do to a strat that just makes it slightly different. And so he was agreeable. And boy, we've sold a, he sold a lot of those things. They're all over the place. I've got three of them, and they're like my main touring guitars now. And uh, I've used them on a lot of records too, including my own. Yeah. And so and so, what are some of those modifications? Because I know I know a lot of guys, myself included, when I get a guitar, typically. Especially, let's say it's a Strat. If I get a Strat, I mean, it's never going to be stock. You know, right. you're always going to do. I'm going to do something to it. I don't know what yet, but I'm going to do something. Yeah, exactly. To it. Yeah. Well, the first thing I do is set up the Wang bar yeah. to where the uh, G string can go up a minor third, and the B string up a whole step, and the high E string up a half step. So I have all these intervals that are. I know exactly where I'm going when I pull the bar up. And uh, that also balances the bridge really nicely to where it doesn't go out of tune when you do that. So I get I get that I get that uh, those tolerances by adjusting the claw, and um, we get we get the string gauge right and the claw angle right, so that spring tension underneath is balanced against string tension on the top, because. The A string is actually pulling the most tension, and then the low E, and then D, G, high E, and then B pulls the least amount of tension. And even though those are tuned up, you would think that it was the other way around because the high strings are tuned higher, but it has to do with the thickness. So string tension, you really have to have the claw uh, a little uh, looser on the bottom, and a little tighter on the top so that it all comes back to pitch perfectly well. So I do that, and the LSL CV Special does that. And then uh, the other things I do, I love to have the the lowest tone knob control the bridge pickup because that's the pickup that needs tone control more than any of them. 
you know. Right. So I set that up like that. The back, the back, the bridge pickup has the lowest tone knob, and then the other tone knob is for the other two pickups. And I know a lot of guys let leave the middle pickup going straight out, but I actually like to shade that one sometimes, you know, just to just darken it up a little bit. It's pretty bright on some of these guitars, so yeah. especially the maple neck versions. So, so those are the first two things I do, and then. I don't know. Um, let's see what else. I'm. Uh, oh yeah, I, I I make sure on the strats that I buy and the ones that LSL makes. I make sure that they're a certain weight. You know, I don't want them much more than seven point three five pounds, and that includes the block, the trim bar, and everything. You know, so try to keep them light. Yeah. Wow. And and so uh, I, I've I've never. I've never seen you with anything but a Strat. I know you probably play a lot of other guitars, too. Mm-hmm. I got a good example of everything. <laughs> I got 335s, Les Pauls. I've got, uh, P- I got a 54 Les Paul and uh, with P90s, and then I've got a newer one, a 72. And then I got a 68 SG that I play quite a bit, and uh, four Telecasters, including a 1960 Tele Custom, which is a pretty pretty valuable one yeah and uh let's see what else i have a flying v when your name is verheyen yeah you must own it <laughs> so, better have anyway, a v. got a bunch of i got a, i got about 70 guitars and so I'm, yeah. i've got hopefully the right instrument for the for the job <laughs> right so what's your uh what's your i because I've, I've i've seen you know photos of your gear and stuff like that and you're like a lot of people. You just got a, uh, just a ton of crap, I'm sure. Uh, but what's your, your go-to uh, for amplifiers? I mean, Well, so, you know, I do have a lot of amps. And um, for many years, I bought amps based on my work in the studios. You know, like when Blink-82 comes around, you know, and they've got this real high-gain sound and the composers are saying or the songwriters or producer i need that blink 182 sound well you got to figure out what are they using and you have to buy it so for many years i had that i had that mentality when buying amplifiers and stuff and then eventually it got to a point where i just wanted to have gear that sounded like me as my solo career took off and I began to tour more and more, you know, so, um, so I have live, I have a live rig. That's my main live rig. And I keep an identical copy of it over in Europe for touring there on, and it's on 220, you know, volts. But, um, my, my go-to amp just for practicing, um, and teaching or whatever else I'm going to do is the uh, the old blackface Fender Princeton? Yeah, and I've got four of those, uh, two that are always hooked up, never leave my little studio, and then two in the garage that I can take with me places. But but my live rig right now is a a Doctor Z SRZ sixty five. Oh, okay. And uh, that's a, my distortion amp. It's it's real modern sounding, and yet it's there's not a lot of high end sizzle. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's warm and fat. And then I have a, then I use a 1969 hundred watt Marshall. And my, my tech is saying, why do you take that on the road, man? That thing's worth 6,000 bucks. <laughs> and I tell him, you know, cause it sounds great and it's better. To, I'd rather play through it than have it in my garage, <laughs> right. you know, 
staying home. And then on the clean side of my rig, I, I'm doing a weird thing right now. I'm using a Fender Showman, you know, an old blackface Showman. Oh, okay. On one side, and the other side is a 100-watt high-watt, yeah. which is a, is a great clean amp that doesn't have that that honky 6L6 sound. I mean, um, I forget what's in there. It might be EL34s in there, but, but uh, the, the, the clean, you play that thing clean, which you can play real high volume clean on that thing. I think it's a 1975 high watt. Yeah. So stereo clean and then wet dry distortion and, um, you know, handful of pedals and rack gear and stuff like that. So it's kind of a monstrous live rig, but it sure fills up the trio. Yeah. So uh, do you ever use, you know, are you one of these guys that ever uses anything digital, like maybe a Kemper or, uh, you know? Anything? Funny you should ask. So this is this is an amazing thing because I swore that stuff off for years. You know? <laughs> swore off Line 6, swore off Fractal, swore off Kemper. Yeah. And then my producer buddy says, you've got about 50 amps in your garage what would you say about going in on a on a product where we we profile the Verheyen collection for the Kemper and uh, we sell it? And I said, well, you know, it's it's actually kind of a good idea repurposing content, as we say. You know, you, these amps are sitting out of my garage. There's not a lot of sessions going on during the whole COVID scene. Let's do it. So. We decided on about 30 of them that, because I have two Vox AC30s and four Princetons and 200 watt Marshalls, you know, so yeah. we don't need two of these things. We just need one of each. So we narrow it down to about 30 and we, t we went into Studio 2 at Sunset Sound where, where Van Halen recorded all their albums and, uh, or not all of them, but the first ones, you know, yeah, right. and we, we, profiled each one of these amps with five different microphones. We used a Royer 121, Telefunken M80, Shure 57, uh, AKG 414, and a Neumann 67. And uh, used 67, I, I think. Anyway, so we got like 145 different profiles, and then we brought the Kemper back to my house and plugged it through into my little studio and I, because I was still I was totally skeptical, skeptical, and I went, oh, my God, this really sounds good, you know. It really was a mind-blowing thing. You know, I, could, I, can, I can actually play with this. I can use this. So, sure enough, I went and bought the Kemper for the home studio thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I went to the dark side, as my friends tell me, but uh, it's really good, you know, and especially knowing that I have my amps in there, you know, if I want that... Rickenbacker 12 string through a Vox AC30, you know, George Harrison or Mike Campbell type of sound. Bam, it's just instant, you know, and you add a little compression to it and you got it. So yeah. that means that I'm never going to go in the studio again to, to record guitars because what you can't do with a Kemper in my home studio is you can't put a mic on something and then distance mic it too for more of an ambient, bigger sound, right. you know. It kind of is what it is, but it does sound awfully good. And I can, I've done, uh, since I've, since I've got that Kemper, which was in July, I've done like four complete album projects for different people around the world, just from my home studio. So, 
Yeah. It's kind of cool, man. It's in, you know, we guitar players, we musicians need to somewhat continually reinvent ourselves as times change and and work changes and the way you make money changes and so um, I was really happy because I wasn't a Pro Tools guy, but I realized that this is the time to learn it. And uh, even though I've been involved with it, about 10,000 sessions on Pro Tools, I've never spent the time looking over the guy's shoulder going, what are you doing? <laughs> so I took a few lessons and really upgraded my studio with some Neve preamps and stuff like that. And uh, now it's kind of, it's working all the time. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's it's funny um, that there are actually some there's some really great bands out there, especially rock bands now. Some of the young rock bands, and that's all they're using, even on on stage, is their Kempers. Oh, I know, and Metallica is using fractal stuff. That's yeah. all they use. You know, I went to see Chicago because my old drummer Walfredo Reyes is playing in the band, and this a student of mine, a guy that I gave some lessons to back in the day. It was playing guitar. So we went backstage. This was at the Hollywood Bowl. And he goes, how is the guitar sound? And I said, you weren't moving any air, were you? Meaning you're playing straight through a fractal right through the board. And you got your in-ear monitors to tell you what you sound like. And, you know, um, he goes, yeah, how'd you know? And I go, well, you can just tell, you know. Yeah. But, uh, it wasn't bad. Um, I'm still a guy that when I play live... I want to feel the ears and the back of my knees move right. a little bit. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm still going to bring out amps and, and mic them and, uh, you know, have all that going on live. I can't see. I bought the rack-mounted Kemper, and it's it's uh, it's just in a rack right in my studio with the Neve stuff and Pro Tools. And, you know, it's it, that's what it's going to be for for me, but it sure is convenient. Yeah. Well, they've yeah. ma they've made it convenient in so many ways because you, you listed some of the the great tools that are out there, like the fractals and stuff like that. But now, even you know, like UA has all these great plugins for like Foosh amps and Marshall Plexis and you know, Vince oh, Fenders, and I mean, you you don't have to do anything; it's all at, the, at your fingertip. Yeah, it's pretty cool how good that is. You know. Um, now, my latest album, which uh, it was basically finished last June, um, but I've held it up because I couldn't tour for the remainder of the year, and I thought well, I, I should release it and follow it with a real great promotional tour with, the, with my band. And so I've kind of held it, and I'll probably release it either in March or April or something like that, but I didn't use the Kemper on any of it until we were mixing and I go, oh man, there's a part you're missing, we're missing. It's a little power cord part that should be right here in these two bars, you're missing it. And he couldn't find it, the engineer, he couldn't find it anywhere. So it must have gotten erased. So I just I just quickly did it, did it on the Kemper and send him that part. And then on another song, I thought, you know, the chorus could use a couple of fills with a, a real clean Strat sound. So I did that and sent it to him. So there's a few little parts on the Kemper, but you know, for the most part, I believe in manipulating sound in the air. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like really miking something and then walking around the room to hear where it's blooming and putting a mic there, whether it's 12 feet in the air or down on the floor or on an angle, whatever. 
I think that's where you get real unique sounds. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I'm I'm old school personally myself in that, but I know I know a lot of guys that do studio work or they're doing work for television. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, where the you know they're they're pretty much all you know using digital digital stuff because you know they might have a quick turnaround and it's so much easier for them to just go to that bank than it is to you know try to dial it up in their studio and that so uh, yeah and for me these amps of mine are all in road cases so it involves going out to the garage <laughs> right. put them out of the stack cracking open the road case then bringing the amp head in and then running a cable out there to the garage if it's going to be loud or putting it in the bathroom or down the hall you know because yeah. I don't really have a, a control room and a room and a, and a miking room I just have a room yeah. <laughs> so you know so but it, you know it's it's you, you can't believe what a great sound you can get out of a Princeton just mic'd around the corner so oh, yeah. I'll continue doing all that stuff I'm sure you know as, as time goes on yeah yeah so uh, so what are you doing right now uh, I know that you know um, you know guys are you know some guys are working on new projects some guys are teaching and stuff like that what are you doing right now to prepare for uh, when this all ends and you get back well, one to thing I decided because you know that the day when I had to go on my website and delete 43 gigs you know wow. 43 I was just thinking damn I love playing in Hamburg Germany and I love playing in <laughs> Seattle, Washington, and I love going to Vienna, and I love playing in San Diego. All those, you know, it was just depressing that day. So uh, one of the ways that I've kind of come out of it is I've decided what's next year going to be besides just playing the old stuff we always do plus the new album. You know, what can I do? Well, I, I got an idea that I would try to play, because I think I'm going to have, ha- I think I'm going to have like 15 albums out by the next release. Let me just count. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. No, this will be my 16th album. Wow. Two of them were, were, were solo acoustic, so they're not really things I take, I play on the road with the band. But so if you go 14 albums, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great to play a song from each one of those albums um, starting back in 1988, the first one? And uh, go all the way till the present, and then play, play the new stuff, you know, or something like that, you know. Just kind of have a retrospective concert, as yeah. opposed to here's the stuff we played two years ago, here's the stuff we played last year, again, again, again. Because a lot of my touring has been with a trio, and so that's been limiting to as to what part of my discography I can do. So um, the the next tour will be with. Uh, some kind of a guy that can play keyboards and guitar and maybe even background vocals, you know, sort of a utility guy yeah. so that I can do much more of the stuff that we've just never done live. Yeah. I, I know a couple of guys that did, uh, they put out CDs that were like, uh, they, they, it was Richie Kotzen actually. Richie put out an album that was, if somebody was going to hear him for the first time, you know what? What would be that album that would be an accumulation of everything, you know, different things that he's done? That would be a good balance. That's a really good idea. I, yeah. I, I commend him for that because it's almost like a greatest hits album uh, as prepared by the artist. You know, yeah. artist as a, you know. So, yeah. 
That, that's pretty cool. That's that's, and I was going to do that two years ago. I was going to do an album called Essential Blues, where I just took the bluesiest stuff off of each of my albums because there's something bluesy on every record, and put them out as sort of a greatest hits of bluesy stuff, blues stuff. But my uh, producer buddy says, why don't we just do a live blues album? Just go in the studio, and so I did. And, and that album's called Essential Blues, actually, and. Um, I did like, you know, I did a Chicago blues and a Texas blues and a Piedmont blues and a Delta blues and some British blues and jazz blues and stuff like that. So I just kind of mixed it up like that to where it isn't all just shuffles and shades, as we like to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a great album. I was actually listening okay. to it. I was listening to it uh, earlier today. Thanks. The cool thing for me, that that's album's made me a lot of money because I didn't have any overdubs and I didn't have, uh, you know, extensive studio time. And since it was the same drummer, we just basically, the mix was basically put up the mics and it's the same sound for every, you know. Yeah. And we did the whole thing in two and a half days. So it, it went down really, really quick and, and easy. So that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> So, so the the one that you're going to put out, you said you have another one in the can right now that's going to come out uh, sometime 2021. Mm -hmm. Is is that another is that a blues album? Is that is no? That... It's it's back to my usual fare of just kind of all over the place. Yeah, it's called yeah. Sun. It's going to be called Sundial, and um, uh, the title to track is kind of quirky, and then the next tune is a real barn burner, and then uh, from then on, I covered. I covered an old uh, Rascals tune called uh, People Got to Be Free. You know that tune? Uh, no, I actually don't. You probably do. It's that one that goes, All the world over so easy to see. Oh, yeah, People yeah, yeah. everywhere just got to be. That tune? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I covered that using two drummers, and it's kind of wild. And um, I also covered a really little-known little Elton John song. And it almost... It almost doesn't fit on the record because it's so different, but it's just a song I really dig, and nobody's found it, nobody's covered it, and I thought it might be cool. It's called Michelle's Song, and it's real obscure. It did get a little bit of radio play mm. probably back in the 70s. It, it was part of a movie score called Friends. The movie was called Friends. And uh, okay. Anyway, this Michelle song is a great song, so I... I, I decided to do it like Almond Brothers style, <laughs> which is which is a stretch, but it it really works, so it's cool. Well, that's cool. Well, I'm I'm uh, looking forward to the album for sure. Oh, great! Yeah, we'll yeah. have to keep in touch, and I'll get you one. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Hey, Carl, you know I don't want to take up no more of your time. I really appreciate you uh, giving me the time that you did. It's been a it's been a pleasure. It really has. You, you well, are I hope wealth, I didn't talk too much. <laughs> you're, you're a wealth of knowledge. I wish you were my oh, neighbor. Thanks, Jimmy. Oh, man. Thanks, Jimmy. <laughs> Appreciate it. So, All right. Well, we'll keep our groove going, and hopefully we'll be out of this thing. You know, people will start getting vaccinated. I was just back east at Sweetwater in... Um, oh, yeah, in Indiana? In uh, Indiana, yeah. And that's that. there's a lot of COVID going on there. I was being super careful, but, uh, yeah. uh, you know, the there was a few people back there that were saying um, that eventually everybody's going to get COVID yeah. and uh, it, that's just going to happen. You know, it's just like how everybody's going to get the flu and a cold and everything else. But, 
I just hope that it can be controlled and they'll uh, and they will get a vaccine. That would sure be nice, wouldn't it? Oh, uh, you know, I've I've had it personally. You had it? Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I just got over it. Um, Dang. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and it was to me, it was like it was like a pretty severe flu. No, uh-huh. I mean, uh, I mean, I, di- I didn't think I was gonna, you know, I wasn't in any any danger when it comes to life threatening or that. But it was, it, it put me down for a while, you know. Yeah, I bet it did. Well, you're lucky that it didn't get, you know, real bad like in some people's cases. Yeah, yeah, because we're I'm right outside of Chicago. I'm not, I'm really not that far away, really, from Sweetwater. Maybe just a, you know, a few hours. Oh, yeah, my my sister in law lives over that way. My keyboardist lives over that way too. Yeah, I flew into Chicago um, with Albert Lee. Um, I guess it was last year around this time. We were going to go down there and do a master class together, and then we were going to play a concert. And so we flew into Chicago and missed our flight, our connecting flight, because they were late. The L.A. to Chicago flight was late, so they sent a guy. In a in a in a Mercedes Sprinter all the way from Sweetwater to pick us up and drive us and drive us down to you know to yeah. and it was wacky because it wasn't all freeway yeah. you know yeah there was some country roads and stuff it was pretty wild but uh, yeah. anyway I think we arrived around one in the morning <laughs> oh wow they get a nice place over there you know and, and they do a great job I, I don't know about you but I've bought quite a bit of stuff from them over the years. In, yeah, me too. We all have, huh? I, they treat people so good. Yeah, you know, they, they really do. It's a good scene. Chuck Surak, who owns it, is just a good man, you know. Yeah. And uh, so it's a it's a healthy scene there they've got going. You know, they they, they really respect the people that work there. And yeah. uh, for quite a while, I, I I was getting flown there to play on people's records. I was flying out there, so I've been there about twenty five, thirty times. So. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the uh, Gear Fest. I remember doing a really fun festival at Gear Fest there with Andy Timmons and Eric Johnson and uh, Dweezil and, uh, wow. you know, all kinds of guys. It was really a great hang, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I bet. So, I bet. Anyway. Well, Carl, I appreciate your time, my friend. Yeah, thanks. All right, so there you have it, Carl Verhan. Best known as the guitarist for Super Tramp, but make sure you're checking out his own music, man. He's got some great albums. He's a is a really good player. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I want to thank Carl so much for participating in Guitar Talk. It was an absolute pleasure to be able to chat with him. I look forward to doing it again real soon. And that go to CarlVerhagen.com, learn more about Carl, support him by his music, take his lessons, you know, do all that good stuff. Now Today is Wednesday, and I am going to do a special episode on Sunday. I don't know what it is with these special episodes, but I'm going to do a special episode on Sunday, and I'm going to bring probably what I would consider one of the best guitar players in the world, and we're talking about Satch. That's right. Joe Satriani is going to be here on the 24th of January, Sunday the 24th, I had an opportunity to sit down and talk with Joe about his uh, new project that he has, which is three albums turned into backing tracks. It's actually a really cool idea. 
And he went back into the studio, recorded all three albums just as backing tracks so that players could uh, play along with him. And I think it's a really, really cool idea. And it's a good way to get people involved in playing guitar. So uh, you're really going to enjoy this. It's a, a great conversation with the one and only Joe Satriani. And that's this Sunday on January 24th. So make sure that you do not miss that. Now, before we let you go, make sure that you're following me, Jimmy Warren, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Jimmy Warren Radio on Facebook. Also, you know, we got our YouTube channel, which is Guitar Talk with Jimmy Warren. Please become a subscriber. You know, we're trying to put out some really good content for everybody. Every little subscriber helps us, and we really appreciate it. Also, we're on Patreon now. You can now help support uh, Guitar Talk financially on a monthly basis and in return you can get something back besides just the opportunity to listen to the episode so go to patreon forward slash guitar talk and find out what those packages are i mean it's just as little as five dollars or eight dollars a month uh, to help us out and it helps keep the lights on and the guests coming and just so you know some of the people that we have coming down the road you know, uh, oh, my God, I got Ricky Madlock from uh, Leonard Skinner, Nancy Wilson from Hearts coming on, Kurt Fletcher, Matt Schofield. Uh, I don't want to even throw no more names out there. Steve Lukather's around the corner. Andy Timmons is around the corner. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's that good. So uh, Lee Rittenauer, oh, my God, did I even say Lee Rittenauer? I did. Anyway, we appreciate you tuning in. Uh, GuitarTalkOfficial.com is our website. Once again, you can hear us anywhere on streaming platforms, Spotify, Google, Apple, Anchor FM, Beaker Outbreak, all those good sites. We appreciate you tuning in, and we'll see you on Sunday when my guest is going to be the one and only Joe Satriani. So stay cool, y'all. <laughs>